We have been for the last uh, several months considering the Gospel of Mark. And we have done this because we believe that it is a time for us to reacquaint ourselves with the truth about Jesus Christ, about who He is, about what He's done, what He is doing, and what He's going to do in the world. Mark was the first of the Gospels that were written, and it was written with a decidedly Roman audience in mind. You can tell that from the style that he used, the uh, examples that he told out of all the things that he could have said and the things that he didn't say, but the things that he did say. You can tell that he wrote this with a Roman audience in mind. But it was far beyond that. It reaches across time to all of us. And it is a gospel for you and I today. It is, you see, it's important for us to know about who Jesus is, what he did, what he is doing and what he's going to do as it was for those folks in the first century. And thus our series through the Gospel of Mark. We've kind of settled down here in Mark chapter 13 which relates so much to the things that Jesus is going to do. At this time I'd invite you all to stand as we read from the Word of God. Mark chapter 13 verse 31. The message I call, What do we do now? Heaven and earth, Jesus said, will pass away. But my words will by no means pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch and pray, for you do not know when the time is. May God bless the reading of His Word today as my prayer. You may be seated. The disciples approached Jesus asking him a question, when shall these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the world? Jesus gave his longest answer during his ministry to any question that he was asked to the disciples when they gave him that question. And of course, if you turn over to the end of the book, the book of Revelation, you'll see that that is called the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Jesus gave us a lot more detail uh, about that. Uh, even through the book of Revelation, uh, but certainly a long, long uh, answer that he gave in Mark chapter 13, and we're about to the end of that now. Uh, He answered them with several things that were not a sign of the end. There would be wars and rumors of wars. He said pestilences, upheavals of all kind, Uh, but the end is not yet. But then he gave them a particular sign, a sign when the Antichrist kingdom would be established what he called uh, the abomination of desolation or the uh, abomination that makes desolate. He described a time when he would establish a kingdom uh, that would be both a religious kingdom and a political kingdom and would assume then power over the economies of the world. It's hard for us to put all that together in one way, but in another way we can see how it could happen very easily and very quickly. Uh, This Antichrist kingdom is going to be set up in Israel, in Jerusalem. We might not pick that spot if we were picking out a place. We might pick New York City or some other great city in the world right now. It might have made a lot more sense in the first century had they said Rome, but they didn't. Jesus was very clear and the Old Testament prophets were very clear that this kingdom of the Antichrist will be established in Jerusalem. It's not going to be a long-lasting kingdom. Three and a half years. 
I've pointed out many times, less than a presidential term, three and a half years. A lot would be accomplished in that seven years of tribulation. In the last three and a half years, when there will be not only that political kingdom established, but then God's judgment begins to be poured out upon the earth. So Jesus has talked about these things. We see all of that in Mark chapter 13. We saw last week that once all of these things begin to happen, uh, Jesus said, when you begin to see these things to pass, in this generation he said will not pass until all of these things shall be fulfilled. That is, Jesus' assurance that this is not going to be drug out over eons and eons of time. It's going to happen quickly and suddenly, and it's going to then begin to play out very, very quickly. And then our text today gives us that profound information. Heaven and earth will pass away. But my words, Jesus said, shall not pass away. And I want to say it again today. It is the Word of God, not the whims of culture, that will determine the destiny of this planet. Heaven and earth will pass away. But my word will not. We hear so much these days about saving the planet. And I have a simple message for all those who are so caught up in all of this. The planet can't be saved. Jesus said it. Heaven and earth will pass away. The planet can't be saved. But you can. (laughs) You can be. People can be saved. So we don't waste our time trying to save something that can be saved because Jesus can't be saved because Jesus tells us what can be saved. Whoever. Whoever, whosoever believeth in me should not perish but have everlasting life. Whoever believes in me should never die. In his most ex- uh, in a more exhaustive treatment of this subject in the book of Revelation, Jesus would say this in verse 6 of chapter 20, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection, on such the second death hath no power. Amen. Amen. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with Him a thousand years. We call that the millennial reign of Christ. We will live and reign with Him upon this earth. It is the Word of God, not the whims of culture, that establishes the destiny of this planet. So we go back then to the words of our text where Jesus said in verse 33, Take heed, watch and pray. For you do not know when the time is. So heaven and earth will pass away. That's sure. Jesus would say specifically then that no one knows the day or the hour of His coming. Paul would later preach on Mars Hill in Athens, famous place, Acts chapter 17. And he would say, truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. But now commands all men everywhere. Where to repent. Not some. Not a few. All men everywhere need to repent. Why? Glad you asked. Jesus or Paul answered, because. Because. Why do all men everywhere need to be, uh, be concerned about repentance? Because. He, that's God, has appointed a day. God has appointed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom He has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising Him from the dead. That day is set and settled in the mind of God. And nothing happening on this planet right now is going to speed it up 
or hold it back. That day has been appointed by God. And it will happen when he says it's going to happen. God has appointed a day. But Jesus said, no man knows the day. Now, over the last 150 years or so, the world has abounded with people who think they have figured it out. They borrow from Jesus' words here, nobody knows the day nor the hour. But then they say, well, that doesn't mean you can't know the week, or you can't know the month, or you can't know the year. We're well familiar historically with the work of Joseph Smith, the Mormons as we call them. Don't forget, these are the Latter-day Saints. You see, they're called that for a reason. A big part of Joseph Smith's ideas was that Jesus was going to return in 1830. Uh, then it was 1890. Uh, then it was 1891. And who knows how many dates have been set since then. Then there were the Millerites. The Millerites are of Adventism fame. Uh, we know the Seventh-day Adventists. We tend to think of them as only those people that worship on Saturday. Uh, but uh, listen, their big thing is Advent, Adventism. Uh, the Seventh-day, yes, is a part of it, but their biggest thing is about the return of Jesus Christ. Uh, and their uh, biggest uh, voice at, at one time was predicting the return of Jesus Christ in 1843. Uh, then, of course, it was 1844. Uh, then it was 1850. And then it was 1856. Um, now most of the material that I see from Adventists uh, is preterist in nature. And I've talked to you about that before. That is, they think that the return of Christ now is already in the past, historical, all those kind of things, a lot of uh, strange ideas there. The chances are you may receive a slick brochure sometime in the mail, or you might go to Kroger and come out minding your own business, and somebody's put one of them on your windshield. And you pick that thing up, you know, there you are trying to unload your groceries, and somebody's put this, man, this slick thing, they're going to talk about the return of Christ. Well, most of those are being put out by Adventists, Seventh-day Adventists. And a lot of their thinking now is preterist in nature. Jehovah's Witnesses, we've heard about them. They predicted the return of the Lord in 1914, 15, 18, 20, 25, 41, 75, and 90. But I was able to quickly document it. I didn't want to waste a lot of time uh, researching it. Um, of course, they're famous for saying that only 144,000 are going to be saved, and the rest, I guess, will just sleep in their graves for all eternity. Uh, Jehovah's Witness. See, there was a lot of these that surfaced, a lot of this kind of thinking that surfaced in the 1800s and early 1900s, but it didn't stop. It didn't stop then. And we can't just point our finger at these extremist groups because we've had a lot of Baptist folk, as I've told you before, who got caught up in all the late 1980s predictions based on an idea and interpretation of the parable of the fig tree. Uh, that Israel was reborn in 1948, and therefore in 40 years Jesus is going to come. That generation, a generation in Bible times is 40 years. A lot of people jumped on the bandwagon, and I've told you uh, I was on it myself for a while. Uh, then it was the 90s, the 2000s. Some of you remember Y2K. That had its followers for a while. A couple of years back it was the blood moons, and I just was sure, absolutely sure that was going to be it. Over the course of my 40-plus years in the ministry, there's hardly been a year that has passed without somebody publishing a book 
thinking that they've got it figured out. This is it. This year is going to be it. This October. I don't know why it's always October. I don't know why they've got against October. After all, it's Pastor Appreciation Month. Pick November. <laughs> Somebody comes to me and says, Brother Rich, have you read this, this greatest and latest book? And my answer is always the same. No. No. The common fallacies of all these things, you see, is to set a day at a time when Jesus comes. Logic might dictate to us that sooner or later one of them is going to be right. After all, a, a stopped clock is still right twice a day. It would seem reasonable to conclude that someday one of these predictors and date setters is going to be right and he'll go out in the rapture saying, See, I told you so. <laughs> I told you. But that's not what Jesus said. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 44 said, Therefore you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. How about that one? So about every time the latest book craze and somebody has this point and they're making this big date set, and you know what I do? I just wrap that one off the calendar. No, that ain't going to be it. If I turn out to be wrong someday, I'll say, even so, come Lord Jesus. I'll be shouting amen going out. It doesn't matter. But I, I just have a hard time getting past the fact that Jesus said very plainly, I'm coming at a time that you don't expect. He said more. Matthew 24, verse 40. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. Right now humanity is divided up and factioned up in a lot of different factions and factors, all kinds of economic situations, educational situations, all kinds of political aspirations divide humanity. But I'm here to tell you this morning that one day it's all going to come down to those who are taken and those who are left behind. One will be taken and another will be left. So Jesus applies all this to us in Mark chapter 13 by saying three things. Take heed, watch, and pray. Take heed, watch, and pray. Take heed means simply to give attention to these things. Put this in our program. Figure it into our hard drive. Make it a part of our operational system. Because as believers in Christ, we know that heaven and earth will pass away, but the word of Jesus Christ will not pass away. He has told us these things, and we know that these things are as true as the thing that he told us when he said, Whosoever believes on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. If we believe one side of that, then we believe this one too. And so he tells us to take heed to this. You pay attention to this. You figure it into your program and your plans. Help it develop uh, into your life so that it affects your life. And it's figured into what you do and how you do it. Take heed. Take heed. He said, watch. 
Now, Jesus would give several parables. Uh, one more in this passage in Mark chapter 13, but we're going to see a couple of more out of Matthew chapter 24 this morning where Jesus specifically applied those to that principle of watch. What does it mean to watch? Watch. Does that mean we go out in the parking lot and stand around looking up? Well, they tried that before. You remember when Jesus ascended up into heaven and he had told them, I'm going to come back. What did the angel say? Why do you stand here watching? Well, he told us to. That's, I would expect Simon Peter to have given that answer. Well, he, he told us to watch. Why stand you here gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, if you've seen, go up. Well, likewise, come again. He's going to come back to the same spot, Mount of Olives. So go and do what he told them to do. What he had told them to do was tarry in Jerusalem until they'd be endued with power from on high. It was 10 days. After all these many centuries, we gather here, and I'm preaching today on the anniversary of that. Uh, Pentecost on the Jewish calendar, yes, 50 days. That would be today. Jesus said, watch, but he didn't mean just watch. He gave us some parables that tell us what to do and what it means to watch. The other thing he told us to do is pray. Pray. The last prayer in the Bible. Revelation chapter 22 and verse 20. He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so come Lord Jesus. Last prayer. Even so come Lord Jesus. Are you praying that prayer yet? I hope you are. If you aren't and you live long enough, you will be. You will be. Pray. Take heed, watch, and pray. Take heed means to pay attention to this, figure it into our lifestyle program. Uh, pray, pray for the return of Jesus Christ. And watch. How does this play out? So we've got the parables, and Jesus gave us three. And the first one we call the parable of the householder in verse 34. Jesus said, Mark 13, It's like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming in the evening at midnight at the crowing of the rooster in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, Watch. And so Jesus tells them a story, as he so often did. And this story uh, has an obvious framework. He said this is about a householder, a farmer. Uh, he gave particular instructions then to his servants, his slaves, concerning their work. And within those instructions, Jesus gave them the authority or the responsibility then to fulfill the tasks I said Jesus did, the landowner did, the husbandman gave them the authority, the responsibility to fulfill those tasks. Uh, now, we spend a lot of time in Baptist churches talking about authority. And uh, many have suggested that this passage teaches us, this parable teaches us, that Jesus gave his authority to the church or to his people. And uh, unfortunately, that's not the case. Matthew chapter 28, Jesus said, all authority is given unto me. Jesus kept all of the authority, and he didn't give any of it to anybody. He still got it. And by the way, in Matthew chapter 28, he said something else. He said what? And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. And Jesus is keeping that promise with us right here today. 
Where two of you gather together, Jesus said in my name, there will I be in the midst of them. Now, please tell me, if the king is in residence, who is in charge? (laughs) Yeah, the king is. The king is. So, what did he mean by this when he said he gave them authority? It means he gave them tasks to perform. And in the giving them of those tasks, then, was the responsibility to fulfill that. I like to say churches don't have authority. We're under authority. I could preach a whole, whole long sermon about that, uh, but I'm not going to. It means simply that we can do what Jesus tells us to do. We don't have to vote to do what Jesus has told us to do. Jesus has promised to continue to be with us. So, we'll stay within the story. The story was that every one of this man's servants was given a task to do and the power that they needed to perform that task. A doorkeeper, a watchman, was also set. Now, the Romans would understand this, and the inhabitants of ancient cities would certainly understand it because they all set watchmen to be alert, to watch for fires or intruders, during the portions of the night. The times Jesus mentions in the passage correspond to the four watches of the night. Uh, You didn't need the watchmen during the daytime. You needed them and set them at night. So the householder set a watch, a porter, to give an alert when the master returned. And it had a very specific meaning. He said, uh, so the master didn't come back and find you all asleep. See, that would be a very embarrassing thing for the master. He tells them all, here you all are. I'm going to go. I'm going to come back. And when the master came back and found them all asleep, well, what if the master comes at 3 o'clock in the morning? So what? He's the master, the owner. He's told them that he's coming back, and he has every right then to expect his servants to have everything ready for him when he gets back so he has a change of raiment, he has somebody to wash his feet, he has someone to give him food, and if it's 3 o'clock in the morning, it's 3 o'clock in the morning. And it would be a shameful thing then for those servants to ignore the coming of their master and just go right on their business, sleeping the night away like they don't have a care in the world. So Jesus said this householder then set a porter and it was his job to watch then for the approach of the master so that the people, the servants, then could stop whatever they were doing, even if it's sleeping, get up and get ready to rejoice in the return of their master. What does this do for us then as God's people? It teaches us to maintain a careful expectation and anticipation for the return of Christ. It teaches us to make sure our work is kept up to date and our anticipation is keen. Jesus knew there would be a tendency among His people to lose that sense of anticipation and and the task of making a living and raising our families and eating and drinking and sleeping that we'd just get caught up in the routine and forget that our whole life is to be lived waiting for our master to return. So we are ready to meet him and serve him when he does. The Roman audience would have, of course, immediately recognized the role of the sentinel given the task of watching. 
in a military connotation, if a commanding officer comes back and finds a sentinel asleep, it can result in his execution. So the parable emphasizes the fact that Jesus' coming will be sudden and unexpected, and we need to be watchful in our anticipation so that we will welcome him and be ready to meet him. It would be also a great time to warn those who have the task of the watchman to make sure they're not giving a lot of false alarms. And I'll just go ahead and say it. We've had way too many false alarms from the people who claim to be watchmen. And as a result of that, it has eroded the confidence in our culture and the whole idea of the second coming of Christ. They've tried, cried wolf one too many times. It's our job then to watch, to watch, so that we can welcome Jesus with great excitement when he comes. The second parable is the parable of the wedding. More details of, of Jesus' message that he just went on in. It's not recorded for us in Mark, but he just went right on with it in Matthew's account. Uh, another story where sleeping plays a prominent role. Jesus said, I, I don't want to return and find you sleeping, acting like you don't have a care in the world. And so he mentions then some, another place where this happened in the story of the wedding. The kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. There's that sleeping point again. Now, this is a wedding story, but it's a Jewish first century wedding. Weddings in those days did not have the participants all waiting with bated breath for the appearance of the bride, like modern weddings do. Uh, they gathered at the bride's house, yes, but they waited for the appearance of the bridegroom because the star, if you will, of the Jewish wedding was the bridegroom, not the bride. The date was established. But the actual time of his appearance was not. The bridegroom came whenever he got ready. The virgins in the passage represent what we would call today the bridesmaids. Other than that, they had no particular significance to the story of the return of Christ. What was this? This was a Jewish wedding story. It described uh, the, the, the virgins, the bridesmaids, the attendants. They had lamps. Their job was to go out and meet the bridegroom when he appeared. That was their job. And light his way and lead him along in that celebration. Much the same as the servants were to watch and be ready to minister and, and welcome uh, and have a celebration of the, of the master's return. Here were these bridesmaids, the virgins, whose responsibility it was to welcome the bridegroom and lead the celebration when he arrived. In this story, Jesus also had a watchman, though it's not particularly identified. Verse 6, and at midnight a cry was heard. The watchman did his job. There was a midnight cry. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. And then all the virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us more, some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, no, lest there not be enough for us and you. But go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. 
And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. So again, we have that element of sleeping, the element of being ready to meet the bridegroom. Uh, the emphasis, though, is on the time element. He didn't show up until midnight. You see, this story about our responsibility to be watchful emphasizes that the return of Christ might be later than we think. It might be later than we think. And we need to be ready in case the coming of the bridegroom comes later than we expect. Jesus would go on to speak of the displeasure of the bridegroom in this story with those who weren't ready to greet him when he comes. Verse 11, afterward the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. A couple of quick things. First of all, the bridesmaids all knew the day, but they didn't know the hour. They knew the day, but not the hour. But in his application of the parable, that's what Jesus said. This is what this parable means. You don't know the day or the hour. And so as it was important for those bridesmaids to take that into their equation, they should have thought, you know, he might be later than we expect. He might not come till midnight. So also Jesus said, you need to be ready. It may be later than you think. You see, the virgins in the story had a very simple job. They were to meet the bridegroom and lead the celebration of his arrival. What else? Nothing else. Nothing else. When their opportunity to do that was passed because they didn't have any oil in their lamps and they had to go buy some more, then the opportunity was passed. It wasn't like they could go up to the bridegroom and knock on the door and say, Hey, buddy, sorry, we missed you the first time. Could you come out and come again so we can celebrate with you? We're ready now. (laughs) It's too late. No, the bridegroom was not very pleased with the fact that they didn't anticipate the fact that it might have been longer, that it was up to him to arrive at a time that he chose. So the first parable tells us that our job is to welcome the master and we must not get so caught up in our routine that we sleep right through it without any active anticipation of his return. The second parable teaches us that our job again is to welcome the master to celebrate, to lead his celebration and we must prepare ourselves for that in case it takes a lot longer for him to get here than we would have ever imagined. You know, those men that Jesus was talking to those, that, that, those days so, so long ago, all of them are long since dead. John the Apostle was the last of them. He lived almost to the end of the first century. Do you ever think they thought, you know, this is taking longer than we thought? Sure it did. One of the most godly people I've ever known was my grandmother. And I don't say that in a bragging way. I know your grandmother was, bra- was godly too. I'm just going from my perspective. She taught me Sunday school my whole life. You say, how'd that work out? We had a very small church. 
So it started out, Mama was in the, led me in the nursery. We really didn't have a nursery, but what nursery we had, we did it. And then as I grew up, well, we grew up with Grandmother. She taught me Sunday school my whole life. She loved Jesus. She knew him well. She served him. She was absolutely convinced that Jesus was going to come back in her lifetime. I had to watch my grandmother drift away um, because of dementia, Alzheimer's. Uh, last time I went to see her, she didn't know me at first. Now, who are you? And I said, well, grandmother, I'm Richard. Oh, Richard, she said, you've grown. <laughs> I, said, I said, yeah, a lot of the wrong places, grandmother, I have. I, I know I've grown. So I, I don't know. I, I, I know I got to sing to her while she died. I know that. Sang Amazing Grace. Told her grandmother it's time to go. I know that. But I know if she was thinking straight that last day, because she talked about it so much, I know. She was thinking, well, Jesus is going to come. Uh, you see... We live every single day of our life with the anticipation and expectation that this might be the day. But Jesus also tells us to prepare ourselves because it may be longer than we think. Isn't that a couple of great stories that Jesus told us? There's one more. I'm almost out of time. This is quick. Matthew 25, then, verse 14, For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country, similar to what he's already said, but different. He called his own servants and delivered his goods to them, and to one he gave five talents. The talent uh, was a measure of things of value, primarily gold and silver. They say that a talent of silver, historians tell us, in Jesus' time was about 100 pounds of silver. A talent of gold was about 200 pounds of gold. So this is a large and valuable trust given to these servants. He gave one of them five talents to another two and to another one, to each according to his own ability, and immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents, and likewise he had received two, gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. And then verse 19, And after a long time the Lord of their servants came and settled accounts with them. You know how the story played out. The one who had received five talents made five more. The one who received two talents made two more. The one who received one talent went out and buried it in the ground so that when the master came back, he was able to give him back what he had given him. He had done nothing with what the master had given him. Obviously, the master was not pleased with that. He was very well pleased with the one who had doubled his investments or the two who had doubled their investments, the one who had five, the one who had two. He told them all, well done, thou good and how uh, faithful servant. But then that one, verse 26, his Lord answered and said to him, you wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. 
So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers, and at my coming I would have received back my own with interest. Therefore take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, you see, where the other two parables emphasize the welcoming aspect of the return of Christ, how that we are to be watching for Him and ready to welcome Him and celebrate His return. This one emphasizes something else, the reckoning. The reckoning. The judgment. It always gets quiet about this time. See, some will be living without any anticipation of the Lord's return. And when He doesn't return as expected, then they had no preparation for it. And it would be a long time then. They wouldn't be ready to welcome Him. But this parable emphasizes something else. And it is the answer to this question. Jesus has trusted us with a life. What have we done with it? He's trusted us. He's given us a life. That's a whole lot more valuable than five talents. Thousand pounds of gold? That's nothing compared to a life. Jesus has trusted us with a life. What have we done with it? One day we'll face the answer and give the answer. Romans 14 and verse 9, For to this end Christ died and rose and lived again, that He might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother? Why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. I gave you life. What have you done with it? One more passage, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 12. Now, if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, and stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as... By fire. So what does it mean to watch? It means to live our life with the anticipation and expectation that Jesus Christ is going to return. So much so that when He does come, we can welcome Him. We can celebrate with Him. We can lead in that procession. Because even though it may have been a lot longer than we expected, we maintained our readiness. We planned for it. And watching then means that we understand there's going to be a day of reckoning, a day of accounting. When we face that issue, I've trusted you with the life. What have you done with it? Uh, take heed means that we must be ever mindful that the planet can't be saved, but people can be. Our lives will be lived with this awareness established by the return of Christ. His kingdom will come. His kingdom will come. His will will be done 
on this earth as it is in heaven. That is going to heaven, going to happen. It is not in question. Not at all. We will live and reign with him for a thousand years, and then comes a new heaven and a new earth. These are the clear teachings that we are to take heed of. Pray means that we pray for the return of Christ. And if you aren't doing that, start. Start. And watch. Peter talked about it's possible for us to have an abundant entrance into the kingdom of our Lord, the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus spoke of that in this parable when he said, Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. There is coming a time in all of our lives, mine and yours, when we would all give everything that we've ever accumulated in the entire course of our life, everything we've done, everything we've dreamed of doing, we would drop it all to the ground as fast as it can hit the floor to hear Jesus say two words. Well done. Well done. I've given you life. What are you doing with it? These are the parables. It's not all of them. There were more. But these are the ones that answered the issue of watch, what that means. To take heed, we see that, what that means. And to pray. We don't struggle with that. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. If right now the trumpet was going to sound, if it sounded right now, Dead in Christ would be rising first and we wouldn't see it because we're in church. Just right down the road down here, all of a sudden those graves would open and bodies are going to be going. But before we could even know anything about that, in an instant, just like that, the Bible says, we'll be transformed and we'll meet the Lord in the air. If that moment were to happen right now, would you be taken or left behind? Taken or left behind? Taken or left behind? The way to be taken is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. See, Jesus died for your sins. He was buried, but he didn't stay buried. He rose again, and he gives out a simple message. Whosoever believeth in me shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? If you have, have you followed him in baptism? If you haven't, then do what Jesus tells you to do. Follow Miss Marley's example who was up there today so courageously, so excited. I've been saved. I want to follow the Lord Jesus in baptism. What are you waiting for? You want an invitation? I just gave you one. The water's hot. I'll just turn the heater back on. We can do that tonight. If you insist, we can do it before you leave here today. Follow him in baptism. Get in a church and start serving him. So that when we face that final question, I gave you life, what have you done with it? We might hear Jesus say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Let's stand together, please.